about what the word Christ actually means whenever you've heard it, either in a setting like this, in a church gathering, or in your community. Have you ever thought about what that word means? Well, let's look at one place where that word shows up in John, and as you read through John, you're going to see it just pop up everywhere. By the end of today's class, my hope is that when you read through the book of John, you'll not only see the word Christ, but its fullest meaning will just explode off the page every time you see that word pop up. That's our goal today. Let's go back to John chapter 20, verse 30. And remember, the uh, book of John is written by, anybody know? Well, we assume John. We actually don't know who wrote it because the author, uh, as you read through the book, the author never identifies uh, who, uh, who, who he is. Uh, instead, there's this, this reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved. <laughs> and so you get yeah. the idea that the disciple whom Jesus loved is probably writing this book. And then the very last line of the whole book, he tells you, hey, that one that I've been saying, the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, that's me. <laughs> And then there's these other folks who come in at the end and say, yep, we know it was him. And, but we don't know who that, that name is. We assume it's John the Apostle because many of the other disciples are named, uh, but John is not. And so we assume, oh, he's probably the one uh, leaving his name out. There is also, oh, that's getting way too deep into the yeah. people it could yeah, have been. Getting off topic, Bob. Um, but here is, the, <laughs> here is a point I wanted to make before we read the end of this, is that you will see the name John at least two other times throughout Scripture. One of those is referring to John the Baptist, who there in chapter 1, and if, you're, if you don't know this, you'll think that that's the John who's writing this book, and it's not. Uh, John the Baptist is the one who came to tell us who Jesus is, to baptize individuals and identify him. The second John is actually Peter's dad. Did you know Peter's dad? Did you know Peter had a dad? Yeah, he had a dad, and Peter's dad's name is John. And so you'll see that name show up too. So those are the two times, but you never see the author. But John, in the way he writes, gives us this whole book, this epistle, and he doesn't tell us the purpose of the letter until the very end. And it's here in John 20 that he gives us the purpose of the whole book. So John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And those of you who have read through it so far, know how you get to the end and go, wow, it's clear Jesus did a lot more than what we're being told. And John acknowledges that. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then he tells you what that Christ means, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So well, what does that mean? What does <laughs> it, it Clearly, this is something that we are supposed to believe. Well, and as soon as you get to that point in the book, you immediately have to ask yourself, or you, you do a little self-reflection, and you say, well, there's obviously a lot of content I should have already been aware of. Um, the word Christ, and then even at the beginning you saw um, John points out when he's saying, you know, they were looking for the Messiah. Oh, which means Christ. Um, and it starts to link you back, hopefully, to some things you've read in the Old Testament. But obviously, there's some, there's some homework you were intended to do before you got to John. And I think that's what, you know, hopefully we're going to touch on a little bit today. Yeah, so um, many of you are followers of Christ. And because of that, you are called Christian. Uh, and, and that's because we follow this one called Christ. But that, that term, Christ, is not just a name. If you're like me, I grew up thinking that was Jesus' last name. You know, his first name was Jesus, 
Christ was kind of his last name. And, and oftentimes in the community, you're going to hear that name used almost as an expletive. People aren't really thinking, what does this mean when the word Christ comes out of their mouth? But that word has deep, deep, rich, rich meaning. And here's how that word is used in the New Testament. won't spend a lot of time here, but I want you to know where it comes from. The word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which is built on the root word of the word Christo. And the word Christo, you remember what that means, is to anoint. Yeah, to, to anoint. And the word anoint there doesn't mean just pour a liquid over something. To smear. It's to smear. Yeah. So intentionally apply with force. So anytime you see this word Christ, you're seeing a word which means the one who has been smeared upon. What? <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. And that, that comes from, and we'll be told in John, those of you who have written, uh, read it through, know that at least twice John says, uh, he uses this, this Hebrew word, Mashiach which I have written for you there in Hebrew, which is the word Messiah. And John tells you two times that word Messiah means the same thing as Christ. And so those are the words that if you were reading this in its original language, you would run across these words. Christos, which means to be smeared with oil, which if I was saying, what does that mean in Hebrew? You would say that means Mashiach or Messiah, the one who is smeared with oil. And both of those mean uh, this term anointed. Well, why is that the term that's used throughout the New Testament? Well, and surprisingly, too, the thing that might catch your attention, and I'm not going to give you the answer, uh, hopefully you can go search for it. Um, go see how many times Jesus actually uses that phrase in his own words. Um, I think it will surprise you a little bit, and then I would say dive down that rabbit hole and you'll find some interesting things uh, that will keep you hungry. Because uh, a lot of times you, it's, it's not even... It's not often used in a direct, oh, that's him, but it's more or less, eh, I don't know, is that really? Um, so you'll start to pick up on some subtleties and some irony, and it's quite interesting as you go through. Well, I think it's worth actually stating that. So how many times, if I were doing a word search, how many times would I expect to find the word Christos or Christ? You're going to find it 19 times in the book of John. Yeah, 19 times in the book of John. And if you have footnotes, there may be one more in one of the footnotes. Uh, so look for all 20. But as as you correctly say, the concept of what this word means shows up in all kinds of other ways. Correct. It was on their minds. I mean, anyone who was anyone, when you said, when you said Christ or Messiah in, in Hebrew, they knew what you were talking about immediately. But they also had a lot of, of connotations to that as well. They did not come into it unknowingly. Um, they were aware that people were looking for this person, this thing, this entity called Christ. Um, so again, it calls you back to, you might need to do a little homework first, see what that means before you dive into John. Yeah. Well, let's, let's actually turn to John chapter 1, and there we're going to find this word Christ and where it first starts showing up. It shows up in the prologue, which we read last week, where John says that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Christ. Yeah, the word is used there. And then turn down to verse 19, and we start to get this, the narrative of these events in which Jesus was first being introduced to people. And the very first person who mentions Christ there is John. But remember, this is not John the author. This is John the Baptist. John has come baptizing people there in the Jordan. And this is the testimony that he gave when the priests and the Levites came up from Jerusalem and said, hey, who are you? Now, they had 
for reasons which we'll have to talk about later, they had reason for trying to figure out what's John trying to pull off. And so they come and ask him, but notice what John says. John freely confesses, did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Which is kind of funny when you hit this, because nobody ever asked, are you the Christ? He just led with it. <laughs> he just kind of led out with, I just want everybody to know from the first here, I am not the Mashiach. I am not the one who has been anointed with oil. And then, of course, John ends up pointing to the other disciples who were there, and, uh, and he first finds, what was it, Andrew and the other disciple. Yeah, not named. <laughs> the disciple who is not named. John points the two of them towards Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes the sin away from the world. And those two individuals end up uh, following Jesus that day. Jesus spends time with them, and Andrew had a brother. Do you remember who Andrew's brother was? Is Peter. Peter. Andrew had a brother, whom you know as Peter. And so Andrew went back, and Andrew says to him, uh, uh, where was that, verse 40? Verse 41. 41. We have found, or, yeah, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Which means Christ. And so Andrew f- finds his brother and says, we found him. We found this Mashiach, this anointed one, the one named Christ. You know, and, and one comment I don't think we touched on before, but, I mean, notice the fact that he didn't, he knew, he knew what he was looking for. He had this information in mind. You know, it, it, he wasn't blinded to it. There wasn't just this guy out baptizing and some, you know, leaders came up and said, oh, are you the Christ? Andrew, being lowly in status in the community, knew what he was looking for in this man, which I think is just all the more called to. We also need to know, what are we looking for when we yeah. talk about the Christ and the Messiah? You know, that's a, that's a great point, is that you get the idea from the start these men were looking for someone. There was an expectation. And it's not only Andrew and Peter. We also find that it's uh, Philip. And so uh, John the Baptist points Philip towards Jesus. And again, um, uh, Jesus finds Philip and says, follow me. So Philip decides to follow Jesus. And Philip had a... Uh, uh, yeah, in 45. 45, went to Nathaniel. And, and so Philip goes and finds Nathaniel. And, and says to him, hey, we found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth. And so here's another place where not the term Christ, but the idea of Christ, the one that Moses wrote about, the prophets wrote about, has showed up, Jesus of Nazareth. And do you remember Nathaniel's famous statement? Yeah. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Apparently it wasn't, <laughs> uh, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't considered didn't have a, a good name, apparently. <laughs> flattering to say that I was from Nazareth. Yeah. No. And so he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip gives the best answer that you can ever give when you're, when you're talking to a neighbor. It's come and see. And Nathaniel does. Nathaniel goes to see Jesus. And as he walks up, Jesus looks at Nathaniel and says, behold, a... A true... You are truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. True Israelite in whom there is no deceit. A little quick historical <laughs> swerve. Do you know where we, why we would call a person an Israelite? Where do they come from? Because they came from the land of Israel. Israel. And that word Israel is actually the name of someone. Did you remember uh, who was given the name Israel in the Old Testament? It was Jacob. Jacob. Right, Jacob. And Jacob was a man in whom there was... A lot of deceit. Everything (laughs) false. Yes, you remember Jacob. His name means grabs the heel. 
or the one who deceives. He, uh, who all did he deceive? Let's see. He, uh, his father, his brother, his father, his brother, uh, his uncle, Laban, right? Yeah. His, uh, and a total, a, a total crook. I mean, he <laughs> deceives everybody. And yet through him is going to come this promise. And so Jesus is playing on something here when he says, oh, here is a true Israelite. Here is a true descendant of Jacob, but in whom there is nothing false. And then look at what Jesus says to him next. Of course, Nathanael goes, what? How do you know me? And Jesus says, uh, well, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel, two of the names that you'll see for this anointed one. And then Jesus says, because I saw you, said, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I have a comment. Yeah. And so Stephen makes a great point here, and that is there is this expectation that is building, and that expectation is that it's going to be a king, someone who will confront Caesar and be the equivalent power but then stronger. That's, and you see that throughout the whole book is this expectation, and that was there from the beginning. But Jesus with Nathaniel refers to a story that they all would have grown up knowing. And he says, if you're impressed that I said I saw you under the fig tree, you're going to be really impressed when you see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Why did he say that? <laughs> it's an odd phrase to say in the moment, um, but it, it's, it's very distinct. Uh, it links you to a story you can't help but recall, um, especially if you grew up on these, of the only other time... Uh, where such a phrase is said, and it and going back to you know the deceiver, it goes back to the story of Jacob um, when Jacob was when he had when he was on his way when he this goes back to genesis twenty eight where Jacob has a dream and he has a dream that involves angels ascending and descending um, on a ladder and we 're going to go we 're going to read part of that um, so in genesis twenty eight we find um, in the first part Jacob is sent away from his family, by his father. Um, he had just deceived his brother and stolen the birthright. And so as he's going, he comes upon a place. It's said it's a particular place. Um, and he's tired from his journey, so he sets up a stone, which doesn't sound like a great thing to sleep on, but that's what he puts his head on. Um, and then he has this dream. Yeah. And notice that the dream was of a ladder or a great staircase set up on the earth. Now, just to be clear, we just went back thousands of years from when Jesus makes this comment to Nathaniel. So we've rolled the, the clock back probably 1,500, 2,000 years. I haven't done At that least, exactly yeah. in my head. But here you have Jacob, that deceiver, who decides to take a nap in this place. And as Tim says, puts his head on the rock. And he has this dream where a ladder is set up on the earth. And the top of it was reaching heaven. And where was the bottom of it? Right here where Jacob was. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. 
and said, I am, and notice that L-O-R-D, that's the holy name of God. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give you into your offspring. There's this promise that's being made. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. It's going to happen through you. Behold, I am with you, will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. And then Jacob wakes up, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This is a place where heaven and earth have suddenly come together in one spot. So early in the morning, Jacob took that very stone that he put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar. He kind of turned it up on its side, and then look what he did. He poured oil on top of it. And then later in chapter 30, we're going to be told that what he did here is he anointed this rock, and then he called that place Bethel, or Bethel, which means house of God. It's a longer side story, but do you know that's how Bethel, Alaska got its name? It's the first missionaries who landed there. Guess what they were reading that day in their devotionals? <laughs> it was this <laughs> very passage. And at the end of the passage, it says that uh, the name of that place became Bethel. And so they decided to name uh, Bethel, Alaska that. But that's why, Jacob, uh, that's why Jacob called this place Bethel. And that's the story of the angels ascending and descending on this place. Now, Tim, when you and I were studying this ahead of time, we didn't start here. We started no. in John Correct. and asked, hey, where's this, you know? Oh, yeah, that was the question. Of, wouldn't it be kind of interesting if the very first mention of anointing happened to be this Jacob story? Yeah. And then it, it turns out it is the very first mention of an anointing is Genesis 28. Yeah. Which, to, to, to those listening to Jesus, I think this would have been a call to not only start with the anointings, where they begin, and then think about all of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, all throughout uh, the Jewish history of what that means. And he's trying to call to mind, you know, this whole concept of what it means to be anointed, because um, that's what Messiah means, is the anointed one standing before them, and he wants to get their minds wrapped around these, these really large thoughts that are hard to grasp. So let's see if we can tie it then back to John over the next few minutes. Because that's right, even in your English Bible, if you search the word anointed, the very first time it shows up is this story of Jacob. But that's not the only time you're going to see this word smeared or anointed. Turns out there are a lot of people throughout Scripture who are anointed. You remember all the folks who <laughs> we ran across who end up being anointed. It's not just rocks. No. Uh, um, generally, there's four categories that we, I came across. was prophets, kings. Um, you also have priests. And then, oddly enough, you have things um, generally associated with the dwelling place of God, such as the tabernacle or the temple. Um, you don't, and surprisingly, though, the most times it's talked about in the Hebrew Scriptures is with reference to David. Um, you'll, you get a few of them in Leviticus. You'll get a few um, in the Chronicles and some of the later prophets. But the bulk of the times you see anointed one in the, in the Mashiach reference um, is reference to David. 
Um, it's probably, I think it was roughly 75% of the references are associated with him, a few with Saul, um, but just this heavy, heavy concentration on David and this idea of an anointed king, and which is what was mentioned before, is that's what they're expecting, is a king like David, um, which plays then John will play off of through his gospel, um, but that's not, that's not what they necessarily got, but they got something even greater than what they were expecting. And every time that you run across this term, anointed, what you're seeing in Scripture is a person or a place in which heaven and earth are coming together in one place. This is a person through whom God is going to do his work, or this is a place where God is going to reside or rest. And so one of the first places you meet it, of course, is here. Jacob, when you run into it next, it's going to be when the people are going through the uh, wilderness, God sets up this tabernacle and this process of worshiping him within this tabernacle. And so if Tim were from the line of Aaron and he were going to be one of the priests that works in the tabernacle every day, he would be anointed. We would take this special oil and I would smear it on his head and his garments. And then they would smear it all over the tabernacle as a way of saying this is a place where God is going to live with us. And Tim is a person through whom God is going to express his presence and his word. Does that make, make sense? That's what this word anointed came to mean. And there was a special recipe for being anointed, which you can read. We won't do this today, but Exodus uh, 30? 30, yeah. Yeah, 30. Uh, you get the recipe for the oil, and it tells you exactly what the ingredients are and you know each of the uh, herbs and the spices and the types of oil to use. And as you read through it, if you're like me, you think, wow, I've got some of these things in my cabinet, you know, the, the new essential oil. <laughs> I'm going to make this. And uh, you could even sell this, and, you know, probably for a pretty high dollar. Uh, but there's a reason why you would not do that, and mm. you caught this uh, even before I did. So when you, when you start reading through Exodus 30, is, um, there's a, they talk a lot about anointing the priest, anointing Aaron. He goes through the list of all the things in the tabernacle. That's where the recipe is mentioned. Uh, near the end of Exodus 30, though, he gives a very strict warning on what, how to use this oil um, because it is there's something heavenly happening with this stuff because it turns something ordinary into something holy and he warns them in the end of 30 he says you know don't use it inappropriately this oil is holy because it's making this connection between heaven and earth it's creating a ladder a staircase it's it's combining where we are with where god is um, and you need to treat it with respect. So there's a lot of weight put on these, this anointing and this oil and what it means and how you um, then mesh all that with the anointed one that you're expecting. So we are, we are trying to get back to John chapter 1 and figure out why would it be that Andrew would go to Peter and say, we found the anointed one. What's the difference between all of these people, whether they were prophets, priests, kings, or stuff that was anointed, what is distinct about the one whom Andrew thought he found? And to catch that, you have to go all the way back to the first of the story, to the first few pages of your Bible. And you know in, in page one, God creates the heavens and the earth. Page two, you get a little different variation on that creation. But everything was good, and they were naked, and they were not ashamed. But then in chapter three, they, they break the very first rule. And that is the d distinction between the two trees. There, were, there was a tree that if you eat of that, you live forever. You have life. But if you eat of the other tree, the, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And so they were given a, a choice. And they chose 
to reach for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because of the deception of a serpent. Kind of this strange story where the serpent shows up in the garden and speaks to Eve and says, is it true that you may eat from every tree in the garden? And Eve says, well, all except for that one. Because if we eat from that one, we'll surely die. And the serpent says, you will not surely die. God just knows if you eat that one, you will become like him, knowing good and evil. And when Eve saw that the fruit was good to eat, that it was desirable for making her wise, she took some, shared it with Adam, and then right then this relationship with God is severed. And that's where evil enters into the world. From there on out, there will be a deterioration because of human nature. But here in the beginning, God shows back up in the garden, and he starts to hand out punishments because of this rule that they broke. And there's a punishment for the woman, there's a punishment for the man. But look at the punishment that was for the serpent. God says to the serpent, basically, you're going to crawl on your belly the rest of your life. You're going to eat uh, dust all the days of your life. But then he, he makes this statement, this prediction, prophecy, if you will. God says, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So take just a moment to let that sink in. The punishment to the serpent is going to be a conflict in the years and decades and eons going forward. There will be this hatred between the children of this woman and the children of the evil one or the serpent. And in the end, here's where the promise comes, that the son, distant descendant of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. But at the same time, the serpent is going to crush his heel. So there's this mutual destructive moment. And that sets in motion a story that you will see in an arc across all of Scripture. Because this promise that one day one of the woman's children will destroy the work of evil gets passed on doesn't it? And so next, uh, the next person who receives this promise would be maybe Abraham, who's told through your children, all the people of the world will be blessed. And then Isaac, and then Jacob, we just read where he gets that promise. Uh, Jacob uh, is promised that one day someone is going to come who's going to destroy the work of the evil one. And and then uh, the people are taken into captivity. And then Moses gives this promise. And he says, one day there will be a prophet very much like me, who's going to come and, and bless through him, you know, all nations of the earth would be blessed. And then there would be one of Judah's descendants, David, the king you talk about, who's anointed one. And each of these individuals who are anointed or through whom, from David on, are given this promise that through David's line, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But that word blessed means it's through them that the whole world is going to be made right again. And all the prophets refer then to this person, this human being, this descendant of Eve, through whom the whole world is going to be made right again. And that brings you to the very end of your Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And guess how Malachi ends? It ends by saying, this one you've been waiting for this whole time who will destroy evil and restore the relationship with God, that person 
isn't here yet. <laughs> and it just ends. Uh, that one day, he says, Elijah will come, one of the prophets first, and then after him, the Messiah. And so then you fast forward 400 years to this time where Andrew is, spends the afternoon with probably John mm-hmm. <laughs> and Jesus. And then he goes running back to Peter and says, this one whom we've heard about our whole lives, we found him, the Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed one. Do you see the arc of the story? back to this point. I totally got off our script, but... No, it's fine. (laughs) Yeah, well, and I think, especially when you go back to Genesis, um, if you spend any time in Genesis, you'll start to pick up that, just like how John uses his prologue to point out all the main themes he's going to touch on through the book of John, Genesis is very similar to then how the Hebrew Scripture works. A lot of the main themes that you'll see through the Bible is all brought um, at a head in Genesis. So, you know, two of, the, two of them, as we talked on, the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake, that pattern then follows through. Um, as, you, as you come to new characters, you see who are they a descendant of. Um, and it's not always obvious, and they sometimes change. Um, and and you're, you, know, you pick up on those themes as you go through. And then same with the fall with Eve and how she saw something she wanted and she took it, which is the same thing of people keep seeing things that they want and they take them instead of trusting in God's wisdom to guide them. And just about every story you read through, you'll see this problem again and again and again. And then as their hope was, someone needs to come and help us. Well, maybe it's Abraham. Nope, because he still had struggles and failed. Well, maybe it's Moses. Nope, because he wasn't even allowed into the promised land. And you keep seeing these prominent figures who come to power, but then they fail because they're not the promised one, but they're a precursor of what to look for. Take their good qualities, and there'll be someone who comes who breaks the cycle, who doesn't see what's good in their own eyes, but they trust in God. And you see that you know, predominantly in the temptation of Jesus. All these things were put in front of him, but he didn't choose those because he chose the wisdom of God. Um, and, he, and then Jesus just stands out as this monumental figure who breaks the cycle of destruction and brings humanity into salvation. And it's a beautiful image to see as it's painted through. And then we get to the end of the book of John, and we're told whether or not you live is going to be dependent on whether or not, or the conclusion you come to about whether or not Jesus is this Messiah, this anointed one. Yeah. And, of course, John's conclusion is, yeah, he's him. But he leaves it up to you at the end. And he shows you, one after another, all of these people who came face-to-face with Jesus and had to decide. Some of them were very confused. Some believed this. Some did not and walked away. You're going to see that throughout the book. Well, I think, Liz, you touched on that in your experience, was you see, you go through these, these accounts in John, and these people just keep coming to the same conclusion yeah, yeah. over and over again. So where, if Jesus is the Mashiach, if he is the Christos, which is the anointed one, when was Jesus ever anointed? Was there ever a time when someone like Samuel showed up and smeared oil on smeared him? Oil on him? <laughs> Was that at his conception when the Holy Spirit came on Mary? Is that the anointing? Was it later when Mary, remember, comes in right before his death? And those of you who have read through John know the word anointing shows up where it says she anointed him and his feet with that real expensive perfume. Is that the anointing? Ah. 
Yes. So he was set apart by God before the beginning of time. And so his anointing would have been before the beginning of time. Sitting there, yes. Uh, very much so, the same symbolic. So especially when we look at Saul and then David, and that's really the scripture focuses on David, that he was anointed before, even though he was selected by God long before then, his anointing signifies this is when he now takes on that role as God's king. Yeah. 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 And so the comment here is that the thought is that this oil had some special quality because once a person was anointed, then God's work is activated. Is that right? Through this person. Yeah. And, and that's, a, that's an important point to make and, and probably leads to a clarification. And we need to be sure to clarify. There's nothing magic about the oil. Even though we're told this is holy. Don't go trying to make this in your own kitchen and use it for the same purposes. Um, but we are told in the New Testament, uh, elders... Uh, are supposed to, if you are ill, they are supposed to come and pray for you and anoint you with oil. Same thing. Now, that's not the special recipe from the Old Testament. No. Uh, we're not even told what that recipe should be. But the point there is not the oil having, it does have a medicinal quality probably, depending on if it's a wound that's being treated or whatnot. But the key here is the symbol. It's a parable. That oil is a representation of God's presence coming and being working through this person right. and even in the mention of when david's anointed it specifically says the spirit of the lord rushed upon him at his anointing mm-hmm. um, so then you have this connection with anointing with the spirit uh-huh. and there's some tie there that binds them together okay so answer the question for us is there a time when those two things come together in jesus his anointing and the rushing in of the spirit it, it, yeah, in, in the eyes of the early church, in the eyes of the apostles, yes, at his baptism. Um, and it's interesting, because I, I know I've read this many times, but I just stumbled upon it yesterday. Um, when you go to Acts chapter 10, Peter's giving a confession of faith, and he specifically mentions Jesus' anointing. Um, in Acts 10, I'll let you read your version, because mine's different. But Acts 10, 38. 30, Acts 10, oh, I put 28. Okay. That was 10 verses off. They moved it. Okay, 1038. So, yeah, Peter here is speaking with Cornelius. Cornelius is about to be converted. This is the gospel going to the Gentiles. And uh, Peter says, uh, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. You read a little bit about that earlier. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good, healing all oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And so that's where, in this story of John, you, you see a glimpse of Jesus' anointing. He is the one who is, uh, is the Mashiach, the Christos. He is uh, the anointed one. So w- what does that matter? Now, before we get to that, Liz has a question. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, there are several times throughout Scripture. Liz mentions the point where the woman, and we don't know if this is the same event we read about in John or maybe a different one, but there the oil is poured on the head. And again, it's called an anointing. And isn't that interesting? Maybe we'll get to this later, that Jesus is anointed as prophet, priest, and king right before his death, which is the very event that was predicted in Genesis that would occur where evil will be destroyed, but he is he will be struck. He will die at the same time. And there's an anointing right before that going into, just as the priests would have been anointed before going in. All right, we're going to have to put a, <laughs> start tying the bow on this one. So how do we pull all this together then? There are all these people who are anointed in the Old Testament, and then we come to the New Testament and realize Jesus is this one who's anointed. Why does that matter? Why do we need a Messiah? So Liz says, to secure our eternal life. And Liz says, the word secure there is key. What is it that makes secure the key word? You're, you, if you are as like any human being, your whole life, you will search for what will lead to real life. What will provide life that will not go away? And there's a lot on offer. Uh, your whole life, you will be offered political figures to follow, certain uh, actions you can take or diets you can follow. Uh, and now the big one is technology. Can I show you a quote real quick? We don't have time for the full quote. Uh, but the big, the big issue right now is AI, artificial intelligence. And here's one of the writers in artificial intelligence, Yuval Noah Harari, who is a historian from Jerusalem. I won't go through the whole quote there, but basically he says, you know, in the old days, if you wanted to know who to marry or what job to take or what you should do next, you prayed to the gods. Now, if you want to know what you should do next, you go to Google, Google <laughs> or Facebook. And he says, because we've turned our faith into technology or turned towards technology. Like every major innovation, AI has both a good and bad potential, but the scale is completely different. We really are becoming gods with a little g in the most literal possible sense. We are acquiring abilities that have always been thought to be divine abilities, in particular the ability to create life. And we can do that with whatever we want. Human history began when men created gods. It will end when men become gods. I use this only as one example among hundreds you can find to say this is what's on offer right now. And yet if Harari really is a historian, he will know the problem of life was already solved 2,000 years ago. Jesus was raised from the dead. I think it ties into Psalms 133. (laughs) Okay, you've got to bring up Psalm 133. Uh, so when you, you're looking up anointing, you're going to come across Psalms 133. I'm just going to read it because I think it's a great... Um, it's only three verses, so don't worry. Um, Psalms 133, it says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to live together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard, as on Aaron's beard, the oil which ran down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for the Lord commanded the blessing there life forever. 
and at first glance, it may be difficult to kind of find some some real uh, things to put your, your to dive into here. But when you spend some time in it, you'll start to notice um, again links to all kinds of other passages. But I think at the root of this is the claim is that unity, and not just amongst your family brothers or maybe your your national, you know, who you associate with in your community, but all the nations coming back together in unity is as precious as not necessarily Aaron the man, but Aaron the role he represented as high priest. That this, when brothers come together, when nations come back and live in harmony and peace, then this relationship between humanity and God is restored, and there's elevation put on the people who then are the interceders between us and God, um, which is, you know, and then at the end of three, life forever, which is a tie into eternal life, which we've always been talking about then in John. Um, he says in 20 or 12 verse 50 that his command is eternal life. Um, so they all start linking together, and it's just this, this beautiful image of these things that are holy and set apart and, and anointed. That's where we come to, and we come to that through Jesus. And through Jesus, we find this, this significant connection that we can have, and it restores the entire globe, if you will, um, and brings everything back. And, and it's, just, it's just fun to sit with. I think the, uh, the cup of tea or a long walk is the phrase that you hear so often, but spend time with it. Um, think about it, put some energy into it, and I think you won't be disappointed with what you find. So here's the recommendation for the week is read the Gospel of John. And what you'll find, you'll give me one second to finish this part, what you'll find in the book of John is a list of people who came to a conclusion about who Jesus was. You read about Andrew, you read about Philip, you read about Nathaniel, you read about Peter. You're also going to find this in a Samaritan woman who figures out who Jesus is and finds he is the Christ. You'll find the blind man in chapter 9. You'll hear Martha say it in John chapter 11. You'll hear Jesus himself time and time again refer to himself as the anointed one, Mary in John chapter 20. And then, of course, that brings us to our concluding statement or John's purpose statement. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And hopefully now that word will carry weight and you see how it explodes off the page, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing, there you find life in his name. And we didn't, we didn't say it last week, but we have to say it this week. Um, the, these people didn't take Jesus and take the applications. They took Jesus and they took the transformation. Their whole lives were changed. Uh, yeah. Go and do the same. May your life be changed. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Thank you. We'll prepare ourselves for worship now.